Chapter Three of Fairy Fingers by Anna Cora Mowat Ritchie. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kelly Taylor. Chapter Three Madeleine. Fourteen at table and the Sevres set only sufficient for twelve. Truly, it is untoward, but I wish, my dear aunt, you would not let it trouble you so much. If you will allow the two extra plates to be placed before Bertha and myself, we will endeavor to render them invisible by our witchcraft. Do compliment us by permitting the experiment to be tried. Bertha is entitled to the best of everything in my mansion, answered the countess, unsoothed by this proposition. That, I admit, was Madeleine's cordial reply. But to meet this unlooked-for emergency, I thought you might possibly consent to let her exert her witchery in making an intrusive plate disappear from the general view. And you, it seems, are quite confident of possessing witchcraft potent enough to accomplish the same feat? Madeleine, without appearing to be hurt by the taunting intonation which pointed this remark, replied frankly, I suppose I must have been guilty of imagining that I had, but indeed it was unpremeditated vanity. I really did not reflect upon the subject. I was only anxious to get over the dilemma in which we have placed in these troublesome plates." not premeditated vanity i dare say remarked the countess dryly only so spontaneous natural and characteristic that premeditation is out of the question madeleine remained silent and went on with her task dexterously rolling around her slender fingers her aunt's soft white curls and letting them lightly drop in the most becoming positions the toilette of the countess for her son's dinner party was in the process of completion she wore a black velvet dress which after being on duty for a fabulous number of years and finally pronounced past all further active service had been resuscitated and remodelled to suit the style of the day by madeleine we will not enter into a description of the adroit method by which a portion of its primitive lustre had been restored to the worn and pressed velvet nor particularize the skilful manner in which the corsage of the robe had been refashioned and every trace of age concealed by an embroidery of jet beads which was so strikingly tasteful that its double office was unsuspected enough that the countess appeared to be superbly attired when she once more donned the venerable but rejuvenated dress the snow-white curls being arranged to the best advantage madeleine placed upon the head of her aunt a dainty cap of the charlotte corday form composed of bits of very old and costly lace an heirloom in the de gremont family such lace as could no longer be purchased for gold even if its members had been in a condition to exchange bullion for thread this cap was another of the young girl's achievements and she could not help smiling with pleasure when she saw its picturesque effect the countess in spite of the anxious contraction of her dark brows 
looked imposingly handsome. Hers was the old age of positive beauty, a decadence which had all the luster of the setting moon of Dernwave. It was only when her features were accidentally contrasted with those of such a mild, eloquent, and soul-revealing face as the one bending over hers that defects struck the eye, defects which the ravages of time had done less to produce than the workings of a stern and haughty character. But Madeleine's countenance, how shall we portray? The lineaments were of that order which no painter could faithfully present by tracing their outline correctly, and no writer conjure up before the mind by descriptive language, however minutely the color of eyes, complexion, and hair might be chronicled. Therefore, our task must necessarily be an imperfect one, and convey but a vague idea of the living presence. It was a somewhat pale face, but pure and unsallow in its parlor. The vivid blood rushed without any sudden emotion to cheek and brow, but died away as quickly for late hours to a little sunlight, fresh air, and exercise, forbade the flitting roses to be captured and a permanent bloom ensured. The hue of the large, dreamy eyes might be called a light hazel, but that description fails to convey an impression of their rare, clear topaz tint, a topaz with the changing luster of an opal, a combination difficult to imagine until it has once been seen. The darkly fringed lids were peculiarly drooping and gave the eyes a look of exceeding softness, now and then displaced by startling flashes of brilliancy. The finely chiseled mouth was full of grave sweetness, decision, and energy, and yet suggestive of mirthful temperament. The forehead was not too high, but ample and thoughtful. The finely shaped head showed the intellectual and emotional nature nicely balanced. Through the long, abundant chestnut hair, bright threads gleamed in and out until all the locks looked burnished. They were gathered into one rich braid and simply wound around the head. At the side, where the massive tress was fastened, a single cape jasmine seemed to form a clasp of union. A more striking or becoming arrangement could hardly have been devised. Madeline was somewhat above the ordinary stature, and her height, combined with a native dignity of her bearing, would have given her an air of stateliness, but for the exceeding grace which dispelled the faintest shadow of stiffness, a stiffness very noticeable in the formal carriage of the countess. The wardrobe of the young girl was necessarily of the most limited and uncostly character, and, though she was dressed for a ceremonious dinner, her attire consisted merely of a sombre-hued berege, made with the severest simplicity, and gaining its only pretension to full dress by disclosing her white, finely molded neck and arms. Her sole ornament was the bracelet which had been Bertha's birthday gift. While giving the last finishing touches to her aunt's toilette, Madeleine talked gaily. Hers was not one of those bright, silvery voices which make you feel that, could the sounds become visible, they must shine. 
but there was a rich depth in her tones which imparted to her lightest words an intonation of feeling and told the hearer that her vocal cords were in close communication with her heart though her countenance did not lack the radiance of youthful gladness there was so much thought mingled in its brightness that even her mirth conveyed the impression that she had suffered and sorrowed the only daughter of the duc de gramont at eighteen she suddenly found herself an orphan and wholly destitute her father was one of that large class of impoverished noblemen who keep up appearances by means of constant shifts and desperate struggles of which the world knows nothing but he was a man of unquestionable intellect and had given madeleine a much more liberal education than custom accords to young french maidens of her rank the accident of his birth the duke de gramont regarded as a positive misfortune and daily lamented the burden of his own nobility for it was a shackle that enfeebled and enslaved his large capacities he once said to his young daughter you would have been far happier as a peasant's child i should have had a wider field of action and enjoyment as a humble labourer we should have both been more truly noble i envy the peasants who have the glorious privilege of doing just that which they are best fitted to do who are not forced to vegetate and call vegetation existence not compelled to waste and deaden their energies because it is an aristocratic penalty not doomed to glide into and out of their lives without ever living enough to know life's worth such words sank into madeleine's spirit took deep root there and growing in the bleak atmosphere of adversity bore vigorous fruit in good season she had known only the intangible shadow of pomp and luxury while the substance was actual penury but her inborn fertility of invention her abundant resources her tact in accommodating herself to circumstances and her inexhaustible energy had endowed her with the faculty of making the best of her contradictory position and the most of the humblest materials at her command though she had several wealthy relatives the countess de gramont was the only one who offered her unsheltered youth an asylum perhaps we ought not to analyze too minutely the motives of the noble lady for fear that we might find her actuated less by a charitable impulse than by pride which would not allow it to be said that her grandniece ever lacked or had to solicit a home be that as it may the orphan madeleine became a permanent inmate of the chateau de gramont her gratitude was deep and found expression in actions more eloquent than words she was thankful for the slightest evidence of kindness from her self-constituted protectors she even exaggerated the amount of consideration which she received she was not free from the hereditary taint of pride but in her it took a new form and unprecedented expression the sense of indebtedness spurred her on to discover ways by which she could avoid being a burden upon the generosity of her benefactors ways by which her obligations might be lightened though she felt they could never be cancelled 
she became the active presiding spirit over the whole household her skillful fingers were ever at work here there and everywhere her quick-witted brain was always planning measures to promote the interest comfort or pleasure of all within her sphere the thought that an employment was menial and therefore she must not stoop to perform it never intruded for she had an internal consciousness that she dignified her occupation what she accomplished seemed wonderful but independent of the rapidity with which she habitually executed she comprehended in an eminent degree the exact value of time the worth of every minute and the use made of her spare moments was one great secret of the large amount she achieved the toilette of the countess for dinner was completed but she kept madeleine by her side until they descended to the drawing-room madeleine had not yet welcomed maurice who had retired to his chamber to dress before she was aware of his arrival when she entered up the salon with the countess he was sitting beside bertha but sprang up and advancing joyfully exclaimed ah at last i thought i was never to be permitted to see the busy fairy of the family who renders herself invisible while she is working her wonders he would have approached his lips to madeleine's cheek but the countess interfered and why asked maurice in surprise which was not free from a touch of vexation why may i not kiss my cousin madeleine you found no fault when i kissed my cousin bertha just now that is very different replied the countess hastily different what is the difference persisted maurice there is none i can discover both are equally near of kin both my cousins both second cousins or third cousins some people would call them the one is kin through my grandmother the other through my grandfather what can be the difference my will makes the difference answered the countess in a severe tone is not that sufficient it ought to be so maurice madeleine interposed without appearing to either be wounded or surprised at her aunt's manner if not i must add my will to my aunt's then as though in haste to change the subject she said extending her hand i am very very glad to see you maurice you have not changed as much as my pretty bertha here remarked maurice she has gained a great deal in the last year but you madeleine look a little paler than ever and a little thinner than last you were i fear it is because you still keep that candle burning which last year i used to notice at your window when i returned from balls long after midnight you will destroy your health there is no danger of that answered madeleine gaily i am in the most unpoetically robust health i am never ailing for an hour never ailing and never weary joined in bertha that is she never complains and never admits that she is tired she would make us believe that her constitution is compound of iron and india rubber maurice took a small jewel case from his pocket and preparing to open it said nobody has yet asked why i am here one fortnight before i was expected 
Has curiosity suddenly died out of the venerable Chateau de Grammont that none of the ladies who honor its ancient walls by their presence care to know? We all care, exclaimed Bertha. That we do, responded Madeleine. Why was it, Maurice? The reason chiefly concerns you, Madeleine. Me? Are you jesting? Not at all. I came home because I remembered that today was your twenty-first birthday. I would not be absent upon your birthday, though I did not know that your reaching your majority was to be celebrated by a grand dinner. Madeleine's birthday was not to be thought of when your father invited his friends to dinner, remarked the countess curtly. Maurice went on without heeding this explanation. I have brought you a little birthday token. Will you wear it for my sake? As he spoke, he opened the case and took out a Roman brooch. Madeleine's eyes sparkled with a dewy luster that threatened to shape itself into a tear. Before she could speak, Bertha cried out, A dove with a green olive branch in its mouth. What a beautiful device! and the word Pax written beneath. That must be in remembrance that Madeleine not only bears peace in her bosom, but carries it wherever she goes. Was that not what you intended to suggest, Cousin Maurice? You are a delightful interpreter, replied the young man. Yet she left me to read the sweet meaning of her own gift, said Madeleine, recovering her composure. See, a band of gold with a knot of pearls, a manacle of love, as the great English poet calls it, secured by purity of purpose. As she fastened the brooch in her bosom, she added, I am so rich in birthday presents that I am bankrupt in thanks. Pray believe that is the reason I thank you so poorly. The countess impatiently interrupted this conversation by summoning Maurice to her side. As he took the seat she pointed out, he said in an animated tone, I have not told you all my good news yet. Listen, young ladies, for some of it especially concerns you. On my way here I encountered the equipage of the Marchioness de Fleury. She recognized me, ordered her carriage to stop, and sent her footman to apprise me that she was on her way to the Chateau de Tremazon, and to beg me that I would pause here before going home, as she had a few words to say to me. I gladly complied. At the Chateau I found quite a large and agreeable company. I need not tell you that the amiable host and hostess received me with open arms. The Countess remarked approvingly, our neighbors, the Baron and Baroness de Tremazon, are among the most valued of my friends. I have no objection to their making much of you. Nor have I, answered Maurice vivaciously. But to continue. Bertha interrupted him. I have so often heard the Marchioness de Fleury quoted as a precedence, and her taste cited as the most perfect in Paris, that I suppose she is a charming person, is she not? A comical expression, approaching a grimace, passed over the bright countenance of Maurice, as he answered, Charming! I suppose the term is applicable to her. 
At all events, her toilettes are the most charming in the world. She dresses to a perfection. In her presence, one never thinks of anything but the wonderful combination of colors, the graceful flowing of drapery, that have produced certain artistic effects in her outward adorning. She is style, fashion, elegance, taste personified. Consequently, she is very charming as an exhibition of the newest and most captivating costumes, as an inventor and leader of modes that have become the rage when they have received her stamp. But her face and figure, are they not remarkably handsome? asked Bertha. Her figure is the facsimile of one of those waxen statues which are to be seen in the windows of some of the shops in Paris, and would be styled faultless by a mantua maker though it might drive a sculptor distracted if set before him as a model as for her face the novel arrangement of her hair and the coquettish disposition of her head ornaments have always so completely drawn my attention away from her countenance that i could not tell you the color of her eyes or the character of a single liniment perhaps too suggested madeline she is so agreeable in conversation that you never thought of scanning her features of course she is agreeable that is in her own peculiar way for she has an archly graceful manner of discussing only the subjects that interest her and always as though they must be of the deepest interest to you if you speak to her of her projects for the winter or the summer she will dwell upon the style of dress appropriate in the execution of such and such schemes if you express your regret at her recent indisposition she will describe the exquisite robe de chambre which rendered her suffering endurable if you mention her brother who has lately received an appointment near the person of the emperor she will give you a minute account of the most approved court dresses if you allude to the possibility that her husband for such is the rumor may be sent as an ambassador to the united states she will burst forth in bitter lamentation over the likelihood that american taste may not be sufficiently cultivated to appreciate a parisian toilette or to comprehend the great importance of the difficult art of dressing well if you give the tribute of a sigh to the memory of the lovely sister she lost a year ago she will run through the list of garments of woe that gave expression to her sorrow passing on to the shades of second third and fourth mourning through which she gradually laid aside her grief you laugh young ladies oh very well but i declare to you she went through the catalogue of those morning dresses rehearsing the periods at which she adopted such and such a one while we were dancing a quadrille in short the marchioness du fleury is an animated fashion plate a lay figure dressed in gauze silk lace ribbon feathers flowers that breathes talks dances and waltzes a mantua makers milliners hairdressers puppet set in motion not a woman has she really no heart then questioned bertha 
I suppose that, anatomically speaking, a bundle of fibers, which she courteously designates by that name, may rise and fall somewhere beneath her jewel-studded bodice, but I doubt whether the pulsations are not entirely regulated by her attire. You are too severe, Maurice, remarked her grandmother rebukingly. The Marchioness de Fleury is a lady of the highest standing and of great importance. Especially to the Parisian modiste who worship her, replied Maurice. But while we are discussing the lady herself, I am forgetting to tell you her reasons for delaying me a half an hour. It was to inquire whether you would be disengaged tomorrow morning, as she proposes paying you a visit to make a proposition which she thinks may prove agreeable to the Countess de Gremont and Count Tristan. We would be ever proud to receive the Marchioness de Fleury, responded the Countess graciously. I dare say you think I have emptied my budget of news, Maurice went on. But you are mistaken. Several bits of agreeable intelligence remain behind. At the Chateau de Tremazon, I saw three of our relatives on the de Gremont side, Madame de Neuvac, the Count de Moreau, and Monsieur de Bonneville. They inquired kindly after you, Madeleine, and I told them you were the most... The Countess interrupted him with the inquiry. Are they upon a visit of several days? I believe so. Now for the last, most pleasant item. As there are so many lively young persons gathered together at the chateau, someone proposed an impromptu ball. Madame de Tremazon seized upon the idea and commissioned me to carry invitations to the Countess Dowager de Gremont, Mademoiselle Madeleine and Bertha, the Count Tristan, for the evening after tomorrow. I assured her in advance that the invitations would be accepted. Was I not right? Oh, yes, replied Bertha. I am so glad. We will enjoy a ball greatly, exclaimed Madeleine. And so will I, said Maurice. I engage Madeleine for the first quadrille and Bertha for the first waltz. We both accept, answered his cousins with girlish delight. Not so fast, young ladies, interrupted the countess. It is quite out of the question for you to attend a ball of such magnificent as may be expected at the Chateau de Tremazon. And why not, aunt? asked Bertha in a disappointed tone. You surely will not refuse your consent. I deny your pleasure very unwillingly, my dear child, but I am forced to do so. You did not expect to appear at any large assemblies while you were in Brittany, and you have bought no ball dress with you. You have nothing ready which it would be proper for you to wear at such a brilliant reunion, for the de Tremaisons are so rich that everything will be upon the most splendid and costly scale. Mademoiselle Bertha de Merivelle cannot be present upon such an occasion unless she is attired in a manner that befits her rank and fortune. I also have no dress prepared. What a pity, what a pity, half sighed, half pouted Bertha. It is too bad, too provoking, ejaculated Maurice. 
If there be no obstacle but the lack of a ball dress for yourself and Bertha, aunt, remarked Madeleine, we may console ourselves, for we will go to the ball. Oh, you dear, good, ingenious Madeleine, exclaimed Bertha, throwing her arms around her cousin. I wonder if time ever will arrive when you have not some resource to extricate us from a difficulty. Madeleine forever! Long live Madeleine! shouted Maurice with enthusiasm. And now, good fairy godmother, where is the robe of gold and silver to deck your Cinderella? asked Bertha. I did not promise gold and silver apparel. You must be content with a toilette simple, airy, fresh, and spring-like as yourself. And for you, aunt, I will arrange in autumn arraying, a costume soft yet bright, like the autumn days which Americans call Indian summer, something which will almost make one wish to fall into the sere and yellow leaf of life in hope of resembling you. But how is it possible to make two ball dresses between this time and the night after next? inquired the countess, evidently not at all adverse to the project, if it could be carried into execution. I will answer for the possibility, replied Madeleine. Yes, Madeleine answers for it, repeated Maurice. Madeleine answers for it, echoed Bertha. And you know Madeleine has the fingers of a fairy, and she can achieve whatever she undertakes. But your own dress, Madeleine? Do not be uneasy about that. We will think of that when the others are ready. But if you do not wear a dress that becomes you, persisted Bertha, why then I shall have to look at yours and remembering that it is my own handiwork, be satisfied. There is no one like you, Madeleine, burst forth Maurice uncontrollably. No one. You never think of yourself, you. But as someone is always good enough to think of me, I deserve little credit on that account, rejoined Madeleine. Who could help thinking of you, murmured Maurice tenderly. The countess had not heard the enthusiastic economy of Maurice, nor his last involuntary remark. The young man had risen and joined his cousins. His father had taken the vacant seat beside the countess and was talking to her in a low tone. From the moment he learned that Madeleine's relatives were accidentally assembled at the Chateau de Tremazon, he had determined to seize that favorable opportunity and send them the letters requesting that they should by turn offer a home to the poor and orphan relative these letters though written upon the day previous fortunately had not yet been posted count tristan whisperingly communicated his intention to his mother and received her approval their conversation was interrupted by the entrance of monsieur gaston de bois who invariably arrived before other guests made their appearance. Monsieur de Bois was such a martyr to nervous timidity that he could not summon courage to enter a room full of company, even with some great stimulating compensation in view. On the present occasion, though only the family had assembled, 
his olive complexion crimsoned as he advanced towards the countess and his expressive though irregular and not strictly handsome features became almost distorted he unconsciously thrust his fingers through his hair throwing it into startling disorder and twisted his dark moustache until it stood out with sufficient ferocity to suit the face of a brigand in a melodrama but the most painful effect of this bewildering embarrassment evinced itself when he attempted to speak his utterance became suddenly impeded and the more violent his efforts to articulate the more difficult it seemed for him to utter a distinct sentence he was painfully near-sighted yet he always detected the faintest smile upon the countenance of any one present and interpreted it into an expression of derision these personal defects however were liberally counterbalanced by mental attributes of a high order his constitutional diffidence caused him to shun society but he devoted his leisure to books and was an erudite scholar without ever mounting the pompous stilts of the pedant all his impulses were noble and generous though his best intentions were often frustrated by that fearful self-consciousness which made him dread the possibility of attracting attention there was a slight shade of melancholy in his character life had been a disappointment to him and he was haunted by a sense of the incompleteness of his own existence his estate joined that of the count de gramont and was even more impoverished gaston dubois led a sort of hermit-like life in the gloomy and empty chateau of his ancestors he chafed in his confinement like a caged lion ready to break loose from bondage but the lion freed might take refuge in his native woods like gaston if he rushed forth into the world knew that his bashfulness his stammering his near-sightedness would render society a more intolerable prison than his solitary home at the chateau de gramont he was a frequent guest for the countess and her son held him in the highest esteem after saluting his host and hostess he warmly grasped the hand of maurice and then addressed madeleine with but little hesitation apparent in his speech but when he turned to bertha and essayed to make some pleasant remark he was suddenly seized with a fit of hopeless stammering the beaming smile with which bertha greeted him was displaced by an expression almost amounting to compassion madeleine with her wonted presence of mind came to his aid finished his sentence as though he had spoken it himself and went on talking to him and for him while he regarded her with an air of undisguised thankfulness and relief between madeleine and gaston de bois there existed that sort of friendship which many persons are sceptical that a young and attractive woman and an agreeable man can entertain for each other without the sentiment heightening into a warmer emotion but love and friendship are totally distinct affections a woman may cherish the truest kindliest friendship for a man whom it would be impossible for her to love nay in whom she would totally lose her interest if he once presented himself in the aspect of a lover and we can believe a certain class of men are capable of experiencing the same pure and kin-like devotion 
for certain women. Monsieur de Bois felt that he was comprehended by Madeleine, that she sympathized with his misfortunes, appreciated the difficulties of his position, and, without pretending to be blind to his defects, always viewed them leniently. Thus, in her presence, he was sufficiently at ease to be entirely himself. His amour propre received fewer wounds, and he was conscious that he appeared to better advantage than in the society of other ladies. Madeleine, on her side, had more than once reflected that there was no one to whom she could more easily turn to impart a sorrow, entrust a secret, solicit a favor, or receive consolation and advice, no one in whom she could so thoroughly confide as Monsieur de Bois. Gaston had only commenced to regain his self-possession when the two American gentlemen, Mr. Hilson and Mr. Meredith, were announced. The Countess received them with a freezing formality which would have awed any visitors less unsuspicious of the cause of this augmented stateliness. They were both gentlemen who held high positions in their own country. They had brought letters to Count Tristan de Guimont with a view of enlisting his interest in the railway company of which we have before spoken. They had been cordially received by him and invited to partake of his hospitality. It therefore never occurred to either of them that the haughty demeanor of the Countess was designed to impress them with a sense of their inferiority. Mr. Hilson was what is termed a self-made man. That is, he owed nothing to the chance of birth. He had received little early cultivation, but he had educated himself, and therefore all the knowledge he had acquired was positive mental gain, and brought into active use. He had inherited no patrimony, and started life with no advantages of position, but he had made his own fortune, and earned his own place in social sphere. He had been one of the most successful and scientific engineers which the United States ever produced, and was now the president of an important railroad and a highly influential member of society. Mr. Meredith was born in the state of Maryland, a man of family, as it is styled. He had not encountered the difficulties and experienced the struggles of his associates. He was, therefore, less strong, less highly developed character. He had traveled over a larger portion of Europe, yet preferred to make his home in America. He had once retired from business, but, finding that he was bored to death without the necessity for occupation, connected himself with the railroad company of which Mr. Hilson was the president. The other guests were gentlemen residing or visiting in the neighborhood. They were the Marquis de La Salle, the Count Carador, Messieurs Villiers, Laroche, and Littel, the two former, being the most important personages, occupied seats at the table on the right and left of the countess. Gaston de Bois was well pleased to find himself beside Madeleine, for he was opposite to Bertha and could feast his eyes upon her fair, unclouded face, and now and then he spoke to her in glances which were far more eloquent than his tongue. Mr. Hilson sat on the other side of Madeleine. A few naturally suggested questions about his native land 
unloosed his tongue, and she soon became deeply interested in the information he gave her concerning America, the habits, views, and aspirations of its people. After listening some time, she almost involuntarily murmured with a half-sigh, I would like to visit America. There was something in her nature which responded to the spirit of self-reliance, energy, industry, which are so essentially American characteristic. Bertha sat between the Marquis de La Salle and Maurice. She was in the highest spirits and looked superlatively lovely. The brow of the Countess gradually smoothed as she noticed how gaily the heiress chatted with her cousin. The two plates which intruded into the Cervez set had been a terrible eyesore to the Madame de Gremont at first, but Madeleine's suggestion had been acted upon. They were placed before the young ladies, and, as the countess rose from the table, she comforted herself with the reflection that they had escaped observation. The gentlemen accompanied the ladies into the drawing-room, and then Maurice lured Madeleine to the piano, and soon was in raptures over the wild sweet melodies which she sung with untutored pathos his grandmother could scarcely conceal her vexation approaching the singer she took an opportunity while bertha and maurice were searching for a piece of music whisperingly to suggest that baptiste was old and clumsy and that the service set was in danger until it was safely locked up again madeleine murmured in return I will steal away unnoticed and attend to it. She stole away, but not unperceived, for one pair of eyes was ever upon her. She found so much besides the valuable china that demanded attention, and her aid was so hardly welcomed by the old domestics, who had become confused by the multiplicity of their duties, that it was late in the evening before she reappeared in the drawing-room. The guests were taking their leave. "'I am highly flattered by the interest you have expressed in my country,' said Mr. Hilson, bidding her adieu. "'If you should ever visit America, as you have expressed a desire to do, "'if you should ever pass through Washington, as you certainly will if you visit America, "'will you not promise to apprise me? Here is my address.' And he placed his card in her hands. Madeline looked not a little surprised and embarrassed at this unexpected and informal proceeding, which she knew would greatly shock the countess, but, taking the card, answered courteously, "'I fear nothing is more unlikely than that I should cross the ocean, but if such an unlooked-for event should occur, I promise certainly to apprise you.'" End of chapter 3